Hello and good afternoon. I'm your host today, Abner Belsky. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Please welcome Miss Keisha Brown, who's a former WNBA player for teams such as the Washington Mystics, the New York Liberty, Houston Comets, Minnesota Lynx, and the Los Angeles Sparks, and now leads the athletics program for the Galloway School. Thank you so much, Mr. Brown, for joining me on my podcast today. So let's begin. The first question is, can you tell my listeners and I a little bit about your background and how you started your journey to play professional basketball for the WNBA? Well, Abner, first of all, thanks for having me. This is uh, a quite a uh, awesome platform you have going going here, and um, I'm appreciative that you thought about me to join in. Um, Thank you. Yes, as far as my background, well, I've been playing basketball since the age of eight, and um, it just really started as a really natural thing thing for me. Uh, I played at Woodward Academy, graduated from Woodward Academy, went on to University of Georgia. I played there for five years. And at the time, the WNBA was about four years old. And I didn't know if, if I had the opportunity to just get an invite uh, to come and play for a team. And so I had Coach Landers, who was my coach at the University of Georgia. I had him just make a couple of phone calls, you know, uh, at the next level. And I was able to get invited to the Combine. Um, you know, and, and one thing about that is when you are going from one level to the next, there's always that background check, that guidance. And I had suffered some pretty significant knee injuries uh, with my left knee when I was in college. And so there was always that question looming over my head was, you know, if I was injury prone or would I pan out to be a good professional player? So uh, I actually did, I did not make the WNBA the first year I went out for it in 2001. Um, so I ended up going overseas and that's where I started my professionalism overseas in Saragossa, Spain. And really? so, yeah. So with that opportunity, uh, I was able to become a professional, earn some money playing basketball, but just hone my skills to get back to the United States and for, um, teams and general managers and presidents to see that Keisha Brown uh, could play, could, could handle the stamina, that, that she was healthy. Um, and I, I got my second tryout with the uh, Washington Mystics. And so the Washington Mystics, I ended up making that team. And I was with that club for about three summers. And from there, I just kind of had a whirlwind of teams, as you, as you mentioned previously, with New York and Houston and Minnesota, uh, Los Angeles. I did Connecticut, Tulsa. So I had a pretty good run with it. But, you know, honestly, it all started um, in Spain. And, and from that moment, um, you know, I was a professional basketball player for about 10 years. And so if you can think about it, I was playing basketball for about 10 and a half out of 12 months a year. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to do your passion, it just must feel amazing. Um, so the next question is, did you have any special coaches or mentors? I know you, um, I know you mentioned Coach Landers, I believe, mm -hmm. is his name, mm -hmm. but that led you on your path to the WNBA and helped mm -hmm. you reach your full potential. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a lot of what life is is about relationships, and you know, fifty percent of success. Um, the quote that I have on my wall, 50% of success that you have is determined by your relationships. And I had a good relationship with Coach Landers, and he was able to make that phone call to the WNBA office for me. Um, but, you know, within that Georgia family, Teresa Edwards, who is 
one of the biggest names in Olympic basketball for men and women. Um, she, she was an alumni of Georgia. And so she really just catapulted me and taught me how to be a professional, um, both on the business aspect and on the playing aspect. So I leaned on her a lot for guidance. And just along the way, I met some really, really good coaches. Uh, I was able to be coached by Michael Cooper, who, you know, played for Los Angeles Lakers and won all those titles with Magic Johnson. So I was able to be wow. coached by him for a couple of years. So he's been great for me and, and able to be coached by Mike Tebow, which, you know, in, in women's basketball, he's a big name. But his his family, the Tebow family, has a rich history in NBA uh, coaching. So I was able to be coached by him when I played in Connecticut. So those two guys in particular were really big for me. And, you know, obviously the Marianne Stanley, who was a coach in, in Washington when I got my first job, uh, she was big for me and just learning how to stay the course with with what my goals were and just being right on target with everything else. So, you know, I had those coaches, but that one special mentor was definitely Teresa Edwards. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah, everyone has to have that one that one mentor, that one coach that really helps push them to that next level. Well, you need help along the way. The biggest thing is is the biggest challenge is being able to ask for help because people are always willing to give it. Um, but I think the biggest challenge for a, a lot of people, a lot of us, no matter which age, is asking for the help. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. So while you were – the next question is, while you were on this journey to get into the WNBA, did you ever have, like, any moments of doubt or almost quit and decide to do something else? Well, this is an interesting question because – I never had any doubt about making the WNBA. When I tried out, I initially tried out um, for the Los Angeles Sparks. And Michael Cooper was a the coach then. And um, I knew that once I kept making it through certain cuts and made it down to the last cut before the final roster was approved, I knew that I had a really good chance of, one, playing in the league, and two, making this my profession. Uh, it wasn't until about four years later when I was actually in the WNBA that I was in in a position, I was in a club where um, I wasn't fed truth. And I wasn't around good people. I wasn't around an atmosphere that promoted positivity. And I wanted to quit. And, and I can tell you that was my one moment uh, I'll say in my life, because I'm a competitive person, but it was that one moment in my life where I wanted to quit that team. I was ready to walk away from my contract and be and be happy and be healthy. But luckily yeah. enough, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> luckily enough, I, I made it through that year. And I was fortunate enough that the next year I got a buyout from that contract and I was able to move on to uh, the Minnesota Leafs that very next year. So it ended up being a blessing. That's awesome. That's a really incredible story right there. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us what it's like to play in the WNBA and how it's evolved from when you played in it and how? Um, well, you got some good questions here, friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the WNBA, I, I was in, I got into the WNBA in 2001. And so from a financial perspective, if you can think about it, you only play for four months. And your salary is given to you in those four months. Well, then as a um, free agent, as we were called, coming in, so it would be kind of like the bottom of the totem pole in terms of salary, we would get paid $30,000. Now, 
Now you can ask your mom, dad, $30,000 is not a lot of money to live off on. And so, which is why a lot of girls, a lot of women, they take themselves overseas because you can make anywhere between three to five to six times the amount of money that you were making in WNBA. And that still exists now. The difference between when I got into the league in 2001 and now that we're looking at, you know, 2020, yeah, you've got women in the league who have are now standing on the shoulders of these women that founded the league, like Cheryl Swoops, Elisa Leslie, um, a Rebecca Lobo. These are what they call kind of the inception people. Um, Cynthia Cooper, who's a big one. So you have these people and now these these younger women that are standing on their shoulders, they now are carrying a much stronger and heavier voice. They're not giving into what is the normality of what it should be, one, to be a woman and two, to be a female professional athlete who is always known to get second best past the NBA. And so with them going into the new collective bargaining agreement this year, um, this was an opportunity for them to have their voices be heard and to get um, a deal that was going to work for the benefit of female basketball players and not just basketball players. And what I mean by that is families, women like they want to have families. And in the contract that, that was beforehand, if you took time off to have a family, you lost your opportunity at making money. And so this year, that collective bargaining agreement allowed these women to keep their salary, be on maternity leave, and still have that dream of having a family. So that's one of the small components, but it's such a big component in, in terms of creating a collective bargaining agreement that agrees with all of the women. Not to mention that now you have women there now that are making um, half a million dollars where in 2001, the max salary was a hundred. Mm-hmm. Really? Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you, um, still very involved with the WNBA? Um, not as involved as, as I choose to be. Uh, I am involved in the retired players association, which is a compilation of the men That's and cool. women's, uh, NBA, WNBA. So we do a lot of outreach there. Um, when the final four happens for women's basketball, I go wherever the final four is. And, and that's normally where the national retired, the national retired players basketball association, that's where we meet up. Um, and they have other conventions like outside of the basketball season, obviously with COVID happening, a lot of that stuff is now virtual, but uh, that's, that's probably my tie in to still staying with the WNBA and obviously being with these women now that are doing that are in their next life and are looking for advocation and support. Uh, we all try to support each other as much as we can. Yeah, that's awesome. That Thanks. really is. Um, next question is, does the I know you sort of just said this, but like, does the WNBA ever coordinate or support each other with the NBA? Yeah, all, I mean, all the time. And I think, obviously, even more so now than back in the past. But I, I just think the collaboration over the years and the sustainability that the WNBA has had in the United States has created that bridge to where um, each 
president for, you know, NBA, which is Chris Paul, and for the uh, WNBA, which is, is uh, Aneka Abumake for Los Angeles Sparks, they're able to collaborate. And so, you know, one of the most recent collaborations that um, some people may have noticed was when uh, Jacob Blake was shot. And the NBA in Minnesota, the Minnesota in particular, I'm sorry, not Minnesota, Milwaukee, they uh, boycotted their game that day. And that led to the WNBA boycotting their games that day and the next day as well. And that was part of a collaboration from the NBA and the WNBA in support of social justice. That's a great example. And social justice is very important, very important. Um, so the next question is, after you left the WNBA, how did you figure out what your next steps were going to be and what you wanted to do with the rest of your well, life? Well, a lot of that is, um, you know, I've always gone on the notion, um, don't get ready, stay ready. So I was figuring out my next journey within my, my end journey. Um, I knew that basketball wasn't going to last forever. I knew that my body's going to break down at some point. I knew that the contracts weren't going to be as lucrative at some point, and I knew I needed to go ahead and, and start to put my toe in the water, if you will, with the next piece of my life. So I started working on, um, you know, camps and clinics probably about three or four years before I actually retired from basketball. And while I was overseas, um, I did my best to maintain the contacts in the states of of just having those relationships with people. So when we got closer to it around in 20, my last contract was 2012, 2013. I knew that um, I love the school calendar and I have a huge love for kids. And so this just kind of fit into what I wanted to do. Now, knowing that my background is in communication studies, um, I didn't have an education degree. It was more or less me trying to make sure that from an educational standpoint, I was learning what I need to learn uh, and go after the jobs that were going to be suitable for who I was as a person. And so um, when the opportunity of, you know, being in a sports department of an independent school kind of presented itself, um, I just educated myself on, on what I needed to know to, to be a part of that, um, that whole realm. And so I think once I came home, I probably spent about nine months um, just, again, meeting people, shaking hands, uh, doing interviews here and there, um, you know, but I just, I sat at home, I stayed still, and I was very calculated about the people that I wanted to meet and the job that I was looking for. And, you know, God bless, this, this job came up at Galloway, and eight years later, I'm here. That's awesome. And that's a great... That's like a great motto. Don't don't get ready, be ready. I think that's a great way to like live your life. And you had such a good mindset going into your next phase of your life. So I really I commend you that. on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's time for our last question. So here it is. Do you have any advice for any young women who are passionate out there and love the game of basketball and want to be in the Dumble, the WNBA? Just well, I, I think it's just a combination of what you and I have been talking about, Abner. It's, it's uh, you know, understanding what you want and the necessary tools that it's going to take for that to happen. You know, we can't wait until, let's just say, our 
junior year of high school to now say that I want to be a D1 athlete. Um, that happens back in the eighth and ninth grade when you set yourself up for, you know, wanting to be where you are and, and you going and seeking those tools out and creating your team. And by your team, I mean, like, letting your parents know this is what I want to do, um, creating that friend bubble that you need that's going to continue to advance you to that next level and just being very focused on what you want to do. And it doesn't always have to be D1, but you have to understand that when you become an athlete or whatever you choose to pursue, um, it could be a lawyer, you know, it could be a banker, whatever you choose to do, then you need to hone in on those skills and make sure that you have everything ready before that time comes because, success is opportunity and luck. And so you have to stay prepared with that. And so that's one of the biggest things that I try to give to uh, the girls on my basketball team right now is, you know, we have to prepare when the lights are off because the moment that someone cuts those lights on, we have to be ready. We can't, we, we, there are no regrets in this. And so we have to get prepared when the lights are off right now. And that's when that off season comes in. So, you know, what you do, you just can't do it in season. You've got to do it all season. That's a great message right there. You're thank welcome. you so much. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Brown, for joining me on my podcast today. It truly was an honor. That was me interviewing Keisha Brown, who is a former WNBA player.